Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Cheese. That's what's on the podcast. Just cheese. Okay, we'll ladle in some news about COVID-19 and questions about whether or not Doug Ford is trying to fib to the people. But, mmm, it's a pungent podcast today. All that plus Mark Saltzman on the PS5 versus the Xbox X. Let's slice it up. Welcome to the program. Hi, how you doing? Are you like me? Are you just kind of at the point where you're like, I don't know if I can take any more of this bad COVID news. I don't know if I can take it. I'm thinking of tuning it all out. You know what I'd rather talk about? I'd rather talk about cheese. Because cheese is delightful. Am I wrong? I mean, maybe you're lactose intolerant. You don't agree with me. But I love cheese. So what I think I should do is, you know, if you ever tried to get your dog to swallow a pill and you wrap it in cheese and that's how you get the dog to take the pill I am going to wrap today's COVID news in cheese for you this is what I do for you so as we discuss the numbers and we also discuss what the province has done with his new color-coded system and whether or not it has actually just totally ignored the advice of its own health experts and is potentially lying to us. At the same time, I'm going to let you know about the top five cheeses in terms of sales in the world. What do you think are the top five cheeses in the world? Number five, I'll get you started. Gruyere. Mmm, I love me some Swiss Gruyere. I do. That's disgusting. Hey, come Absolutely on. disgusting. Hey, 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 settle down. We'll get to the Velveeta for you in a moment, Doug Ford. Number Let's five. Give this a shot. Number five is Gruyere. So here are your numbers on COVID as you just kind of, you just savor that pungent. Mmm, cheese, kind of a earthy tone to it. Uh, your numbers, 1,575 on your case number. That is, of course, another record. We have 18 more deaths. The death total continues to be in the double digits, 13, 15, 18 today, always in that number. Ontario's seven-day average, which is more important than that daily number. Remember, I keep saying don't get freaked out about the daily number. You want to get freaked out, get freaked out about this. Ontario's seven-day average is now... Just under 1,300 cases a day. That is up 83. Uh, and that works out to about 63 cases per week per 100,000. So the seven-day average now creeping up to 1,300 cases per day. Your testing number, just shy of 40,000, which is pretty good. But again, I always point this out. Look at your pending number. It is 42,000. So again, in lockstep, as our testing numbers come up, so too do our pending numbers. Our hospitalization numbers are up seven. And here is a number that'll have you scrambling for another slice of cheese. Our ICU numbers up 10. Up 10, 98 now. And again, 150 is our ICU number. Anytime we go over 150, we're going to have to throttle back on scheduled surgeries. doesn't mean we have to cancel them right at 150, but what experts have said is that once we go over 150, it becomes increasingly difficult, and we're going to get more modeling numbers later on this afternoon from the province. The question for you today is, are you being lied to by Doug Ford and Christine Elliott? Are they telling you a fat one? Are they laying the cheese on you? Are they doing that?
You know, I think in, in many cases, I think all of us, to some extent, have kind of given up. And I'm not talking about giving up on masks or social distancing. We have given up on trying to comprehend what is going on at the provincial health table. Who's actually in charge? Who's making the decisions? What does the color-coded thing mean? I don't know. You are on your own. Number four, number four, your top five cheeses in terms of sales, brie. You got to be kidding me. Brie. It's extra creamy. Is anybody really surprised by this report in the Toronto Star? I don't know if you've seen it. But what it says is that Doug Ford and Christine Elliott, although telling us that they have been consulting with health experts, they didn't listen to the health experts. And in some cases, even though they said they consulted with health experts, they didn't actually even do that. Dr. Shelley Deeks, who is Public Health Ontario's Chief Health Protection Officer, is quoted in this Toronto Star article saying, I am not in, gre- in agreement with the indicators as they are currently written in the framework. Now, what is the framework, you say to me? This is this new color-coded thing where you try and figure out where you are on a sliding scale of colors that would indicate your risk for COVID. Do you know what color I am right now? I'm number three, blue. Or Roquefort, you know, if that's the way the cheese crumbles for you. Cheese. Number three on your list of top cheeses, Roquefort. It makes me feel blue that we're at a situation where we read in the paper in the Toronto Star that Public Health Ontario actually said to the province, here's what we think you should do in terms of red, when when we get to the red threshold. What it should be is at 2.5% positivity. That's 25 cases per 100,000 people. But then the plan comes out. The province releases the plan, and the thresholds are four times higher at 100 cases per 100,000, or 10%. That'll make you Roquefort. Now, taking a recommendation and rejecting it is one thing, because that is what the province is going to say today when Doug Ford comes out to say, is like, look, we take advice from all kinds of people. Doesn't mean we have to take all the advice. That's the thing about advice. You can take it or you can leave it. But how about telling us publicly, repeatedly, that you're listening to the experts and that the experts have weighed in, you've consulted with them, and, oh, turns out that Beat Sander, who is the co-chair of something called the Ontario COVID-19 Modeling Consensus Table, and also a scientist at the University Health Network, knows what you're talking about. The modeling consensus table was not consulted and that members of the scientific community were surprised, quote unquote, this again in the Toronto Star, by the plan that was released by the provincial government. And from the NDP, releasing this today was helpful. A series of quotes that they dug up. Here's Doug Ford on November 3rd. This framework was developed in consultation with the Chief Medical Officer of Health, the Public Health Measures Table, Local Medical Officers of Health, and other health care system experts. Oh, that's on November the 3rd. 
Oh, let's go ahead to Christine Elliott. Here she is on November the 5th. Quote, Christine Elliott, Minister of Health, Deputy Premier. Quote, we take advice and recommendations from Dr. Williams, from the public measures table, and there are a number of other doctors that feed into that table and provide us with that advice. This is the defense of this new color-coded system that you know many doctors outside of the so-called table, the health table, we don't know who's on that, but the people who actually put their names to things are saying, mm, this doesn't add up to me. Here's Andrea Horvath this morning. In the midst of a global pandemic, Mr. Ford and Ms. Elliott have lied to Ontarians. And so what we need to see uh, is uh, really a, a public airing of all of the advice. All of the advice that the uh, Ford government has received should be made public. That's what we need. We need a public airing because it's getting a bit pungent in here. Number two, parmigiano Reggiano. Yeah. It's getting a bit funky up in here. We need a public airing of the cheese and also the data, the cheese data, maybe. Here's from Laura Stone from the Globe and Mail this morning, tweeting that the Minister of Health has report has uh, given a statement to the Globe and Mail and says the province is not considering changing the thresholds in the new framework. She says the government received information from a number of sources and, quote, it is not based on one person's view of things. The quote goes on to say, ultimately, the framework was decided in collaboration with Dr. Williams, who also received all of this information. I think that is ultimately where it stops with Dr. Williams and with the government. Whoa, 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 slow your cheese roll here. Wait a second. The framework was decided in collaboration with Dr. Williams. Now, it's a background here if you don't if you don't know this. Dr. David Williams, he's the chief medical officer of health. He's the guy that's in charge. He's the lead health official in the province. When Doug Ford says, I gotta listen to the doctors, he's talking about that guy. And of course, Dr. Williams is not exactly the easiest guy to comprehend what he's talking about. He gets up there, he gives like a seven-minute answer, and you think, I don't know what any of that meant. I don't get it. I don't understand Dr. Williams. And here we have the Minister of Health saying, oh, hey, no cheese on us over here. All the cheese is on that guy. He's got the cheese all over himself. Now, here's Dr. Michael Warner, who is with uh, Michael Guerin Hospital and is a harsh critic of Doug Ford and the response of the provincial government by way of background. I will also tell you that he is an entrepreneur and also has a consulting business on the side. And I only put that out there because sometimes I don't think that we in the media do a good enough job in giving you context. I am not taking away from what Dr. Warner is saying here, what I and, and I'm not criticizing Dr. Warner. I want to make sure you do not take that away. I just want to make, make sure you have the context. Because obviously, if I tell you what Andrea Horvath says, you know what Andrea Horvath's deal is. She's the leader of the NDP, the leader of the opposition. But again, here is Dr. Michael Warner. We need answers as to why the advice of Dr. Deeks and why the modeling table and science table were not consulted when they created their framework. Why do they choose thresholds that are four times higher than what was deemed safe? And who's actually making the decisions? Because it's clear that it's not doctors or experts. 
and then in follow-up, who is going to lead us through this? Dr. Williams is not capable of leading us through this. It's just not possible. I have nothing against him, but we need a transformative leader who's not beholden to the Premier to walk us through what's going to be a long and dark winter. And it can't be a politician at the front of the room talking to Ontarians. It has to be a scientist who acknowledges the economic challenges of fighting this pandemic but puts health and safety first consistently. That is Dr. Michael Warner saying we need somebody else at the microphone. Can't be a politician because, well, we have evidence today that the politicians are not being straight with us. There are more holes in their stories than Swiss cheese. Hey! But did you hear what Dr. Warner was saying there about Dr. Williams? It's time for the good doctor to go. We know that Dr. Williams is scheduled to retire in February, but can we wait that long? We know we have a very difficult winter ahead of us. And increasingly, those that comment on what the province is doing is saying there needs to be a change. And right there, you heard that quote from the Minister of Health. Hey, this is on Williams, man. Yeah, this is on the doctor. That's that. It's cheese over on that guy. You know what he's got on him? He's got the number one, the number one selling cheese in the entire world, which will be English cheddar. Yeah, buddy. Now that is sharp. I'm just working some math skills. You know, I'm a journalist by training, which means I can barely count anything really over 10. I got to take off the shoes and socks, you know, because if I could count, if I could do math, I'd probably do something else for a living. I might do something like try and figure out what's going on with our COVID numbers as you look at our percent positivity. And that is the thing that you're going to hear about today. If you haven't heard about it already, A big story in the Toronto Star that says that the Ford government totally ignored public health advice about percent positivity rates. And what this means is, and it's just as simple as it sounds. I still can't figure it out without taking off the shoes and socks. But it's as as easy as it sounds. It's what percentage of the tests that you conduct come back positive. Uh, And, for example... To go into a red zone, which is an increase in restrictions for COVID, the provincial government was told that it should set a threshold of 2.5% positivity. Uh, And in its final plan, which was released last week, the province said, no, no, the threshold is going to be 10%. Positivity, And that is a big concern, especially when you look at the fact that the World Health Organization, for example, says anything over 5% is a bad, bad sign. You need to lock things down. And we know that COVID impacts parts of our city differently. We have seen reporting that shows that in low-income areas in this city, the percent positivity before this was even released was well over 10%. To get a better sense of how COVID is impacting our city in different ways and in unequal ways, I am pleased to welcome to the program the head of the Toronto, Toronto Foundation, the CEO of the Toronto Foundation, actually, Sharon Avery. Welcome, Sharon. 
Thank you, Alan. It's so nice to check in with you again. I'm happy to be here. You have a new report out, and it shows a bunch of different things. I think that some of us would think is conventional wisdom in terms of the impact, but it also really highlights the way that this pandemic is impacting Torontonians differently. Absolutely. We uh, we just released this morning the Toronto Fallout Report, which is a, a companion to a better-known report we do every two years called Vital Signs. And and it, it, it wasn't in the plans to do a, a big report this year. This, the thing is 104 pages long. Apologies to your listeners. But it is absolutely worth reading um, because it really does it takes seven months of the of the data and the last seven months in the city, um, and looks at it through um, uh, the lens of all of the aspects of quality of life for us, and it it really paints a very stark picture, and it's a and it's a picture of inequality, as you said, Alan. It 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 speaks to how COVID affects some more than others, um, and and uh, no no surprise, it's very much connected to income and race. I've seen the reporting that shows that if you overlay, for example, COVID-19 uh, hotspots in Toronto to busy TTC routes, like bus routes, for example, you can see a correlation there. And, you, you know, the extrapolation from there is that these are lower income places that you have to take TTC, you don't have any other choice, and you're probably using working a service job, front-facing, public-facing. Is that what you found, that that, that is part of the inequity? Absolutely. Um, uh, where where they live and what they do is a big part of it. Other parts include um, uh, the impact on income. So we, you mentioned that a bunch of them are frontline workers. Well, also, this same group has been disproportionately losing their jobs or losing hours. And so it's a double whammy. Um, it's it, They're living in more crowded conditions. They are traveling on the TTC where a lot of affluent Torontonians have the choice to drive their car or to work from home, and they're losing work. They're losing money. They're they're being evicted. Um, uh, it is it's uh, it's what they call intersection of many issues, um, all hitting the same group um, for different reasons. You mentioned about racialized communities being uh, disproportionately impacted. Do you have what evidence do we have that supports that and what reasons are behind it? I mean, I can guess at a number of them, but I'm wondering what your report found. Well, I'll give you uh, the statistics specifically on racialized folks that are hardest hit by lack of income growth and debt. um, Right. We can all relate to that. So specifically, only 23 percent of white Torontonians indicated that the pandemic had a strong or moderate moderate impact on their ability to meet their financial obligations. But that compares to 43% of Arab Canadians, uh, Torontonians, 43% of Filipino Torontonians, um, and 39% of Black Torontonians. And so, you know, it's it's the the statistics are very clear, and, and it's it's probably the most race data we've included in a report because when you actually break out the averages by race, you see um, how uh, there's a big difference between how white Torontonians are experiencing this pandemic um, than others. And in terms of government response, I mean, the response is supposed to be predicated on loss of jobs and, and some other things. How, how have governments done, both federally and provincially, in targeting response measures to racialized communities? 
Well, I, I don't know that I'm well suited to answer that fulsomely. I think they, I would, I would argue they're trying their best. But what I would say is, one of the reasons we wanted to put this report together um, as as a as a body that sits outside government is to perhaps help influence the policymakers, the decision makers in government, but also funders philanthropic organizations and uh, uh, and and donors to take action in a way where they're actually using data to make their decisions. And so for us, we're really trying to influence what the future looks like. We had a, a webinar this morning and had leaders of, of four and uh, for BIPOC, um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color leaders and, and experts in their areas talking about the fact that um, we need their voices at the table for this discussion, um, uh, that the big institutions in this country are still primarily white-led. Um, and just as one of our young women said, just as she couldn't imagine, she's a, a, a young Black uh, leader, um, you know, I can't imagine what it is to be a white man in a, in a position of power, but I can tell you what is needed on the ground for my community. And, and so this idea of um, a giving voice Two, uh, we had uh, 40 um, leaders of color involved in the creation of this um, report um, to ensure that their voices are heard loud and clear by government going forward. Sharon Avery is the president and CEO of Toronto, Toronto Foundation, and you can find the report on the website for Toronto Foundation. Sharon, always great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for, for bringing this report to light. And I think what we talked about right there at the end is going to be so key as we move forward. I, I know we have a tough winter ahead of us, but there is light. There is light at the end of the tunnel, and we know that a potential vaccine, we're not counting our chickens yet, but a potential vaccine could be here by mid-next year. So the question is going to have to be, how do we build back? How do we rebuild our economy? And I think Sharon is absolutely right. We need... BIPOC, we need racialized communities at the forefront with seats at the table. Otherwise, the relief efforts that we design are not going to be effective, and the inequalities that we saw going into COVID-19 are going to only be worse once we come out of COVID-19, and we need to address it. Uh, I got I got a blister on my thumb. Um, and I'd like to tell you it was from manual labor, like, you know, laying bricks or something. Uh, but of course it's not it, uh, because it's 2020 and we're in the midst of a pandemic. So it's from playing video games. Uh, that is weak. I know, but what I, I'm depressed about COVID. I'm, I'm worried about the winter. Um, and I just figure if I just play a lot of call of duty, I said, duty. If I just play a lot of Call of Duty, everything will be fine. The only problem with it is is that uh, I've, I'm at a certain age now uh, where all of a sudden uh, all the kids have passed me, and now I can't play the video games anymore because if I go online, I, like if you go online with Call of Duty, you know, I'm just getting just flamed by a nine-year-old. I can't do it. I mean, I just... Anyway, my point is that video games and gaming is a huge, huge industry and has become even bigger as we become so insular in this pandemic. My son, for example, who's 12, 
spend would spend every moment of his day just plugged into his PS4 talking to his friends if he could. And as much as I'd like to just go in there and say, hey, I really, I'm not really crazy about the mass death that you're inflicting. I don't know if that's super healthy for you, 12-year-old boy. But all his friends are there. That's where his community is now. He doesn't he doesn't have a community outside of his small cohort in school. Can't go out. Can't go to the mall. Can't do what you know, the mall that would have been, you know, the, the time waster for me. He can't do that. So this is his time waster. All of it though is like an eight hundred pound gorilla. He's <laughs> only a little guy. That's that's one of my favorite Doug Forts. I'm on him like an eight hundred pound gorilla. Get off me, Dad, please. Come on, you're embarrassing me. And I tell you what's kind of, if you got a son or a, or a daughter or somebody in your life who is a gamer, something that happened on Tuesday and today is going to have an impact on your pocketbook. Namely, the next generation of consoles have now been released, both Xbox and then today, PS, uh, the PlayStation 5 is out. So these are the new boxes. This is the new stuff, the, the things that the kids are going to want. So let's find out. Is it worth your hard-earned money? Mark Saltzman is a tech expert. Mark Saltzman, million-dollar question. Which one of these consoles is better? Oh, boy. I knew you were going to ask this. It's really too tough to call, too early to call. Both boxes have a ton of power under the hood, right? The Xbox Series X, which came out on Tuesday, 12 teraflops of processing power for my fellow geeks out there. Up to 8K graphics with HDR, 120 frames per second, yada, yada, yada. It's a fantastic machine that has a lot of promise. Not a lot of games yet that are exclusive to the platform, but it will make your NBA 2K21 shine, your Assassin's Creed Valhalla, etc. And then PS5 out today, also a ton of power under the hood, support for up to 8K uh, resolution. So for those TVs that can support it, super fast. I like the design a lot of the PS5, I have to say. Um, uh, but there are a few exclusives. So Spider-Man, uh, Mar- Marvel's Spider-Man, Miles Morales, pretty sweet. Um, and, uh, you know, Sackboy, a big adventure based on the Little Big Planet series and a few others. So it's really, it's like, you know, the way I kind of explain to people is that if you've already built up uh, a game catalog because they're both backward compatible, then you are obviously more likely to stick with that generation of console. So if you had an Xbox One, you're likely going to pick up Xbox Series X. If you had a PS4, 99% of those games will play on PS5 and your online community is there too presuming they also upgrade. So it's a tough call, Alan. They're both like, you know, it's so early to, to call it. But, um, you know, th- you, you can't go wrong, I think, with either one, if you can even find them. Well, that's a great question. I'm going to get to that in a second. But uh, I just want to back to, to my question, because I sort of asked that question knowing that that's really not the question to ask. <laughs> I'm you, trying to be you, Switzerland here. <laughs> well, you, but you do, but you see this, this is, you know, sort of the way people come into it, because these new uh, next generation consoles have been yeah. released at the same time. So you want to compare them. But really, that's not the way people are going to be shopping, as you point out. Because like, for me, I, you know, I jumped on the PlayStation bandwagon back when it was the PS2, and then got the PS3 and the PS4, which I can't get anywhere close to now because my 12-year-old son has monopolized it. (laughs) And as a result, my decision is not going to be, do I move to the Xbox? My decision is going to be, do I buy the PS5 now? Or do I wait till, you know, somewhere down the road Mm -hmm. where I'll see a price drop? Early adopters with deep pockets are going to buy it now. 
you know, but the price will drop over time. You're willing to wait into 2021 and, and wait for more games to be available. That's a viable decision as well. I mean, the, there's so much available right now. If you're a gamer, there has never been a better time. There's uh, free games, mi- uh, more, more than a million free games for your smartphone and tablet. There's existing consoles, or then there's, and that includes the Nintendo Switch, which isn't, you know, resting on its laurels either. There's uh, VR headsets like Oculus Quest 2. There's cloud gaming like the uh, Google Stadia uh, and Amazon Luna coming where you don't need a console at all and it's all in the cloud, no downloads. There's so much available that if you want to wait, that's a great idea as well. And there aren't a lot of games yet for these machines. You know, you're taking a bit of a leap of faith and the fact that they will play your existing games better and smoother. Um, that, that, that's why people are buying it if you can even find it. But there's nothing wrong with waiting. Prices always drop with tech and gaming uh, if you're willing to wait. And some people want to justify the purchase when there's enough new games and exclusives available. All the pre-orders, especially of the PS5, are completely gone. It, it's uh, very difficult to actually yeah, find both. one. Yeah, both, both machines. Yeah, right. yeah, and there's uh, we should call out that there's two versions of each machine as well. There's the Xbox Series X, which is the one we've been talking about, their flagship device, uh, which uh, is uh, five ninety nine, and then there's the less expensive uh, Xbox Series S for three seventy nine that has slightly less power, a bit smaller, but plays all the same games. And then for PS five, there's the standard edition, which comes with a Blu ray disc. So if you have PS four discs, you can play those as well as movies and all that. And then for and that's six twenty nine for four. 99 is the all digital version so there's no disc drive if you have no desire for one or you don't have the budget for 629 plus tax so there's a few choices out there yeah and my son has completely moved now to digital and oh yeah you know we and it's funny you know i i look at for example eb games which you know makes a business model out of selling you know recycled games (laughs) uh and you think to yourself well how can that continue when everybody eventually will just not have dvds at all or, or or any discs at all. Here's the evolution. We went from cartridges and discs to digital downloads to no downloads, like I hinted at earlier with cloud gaming. It'll just play, like Netflix. It'll just start the movie. You don't have to download it to start the movie. And that's where gaming will be going, uh, on handhelds, on consoles, on TVs, and even on computers. The idea of downloading will be done with Wi-Fi 7, Wi-Fi 8, and 5G, 6G. It's, it's really going to be a thing of the past in a couple of years. You know what I found so funny this week is that when we got the the vaccine news on Monday, we re- really uh, good news about uh, the development of the vaccine, and the stock market went up, but a couple of things went down sharply. Zoom and Peloton. <laughs> they've re- they've regained some of that market. Some, uh, yeah, some yeah, of that. yesterday. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting, right? Because everybody was like, okay, I guess we're not going to be doing video calling anymore, and I don't well, think that's the case. It'll be a hybrid, right? Like, but but I guess I, I guess I'm extending that to, to to gaming. Is there a is there a gaming bubble there because there's the profitability uh, is just off the charts. Even before COVID, gaming has been been on like the fastest growing entertainment medium on the planet. It is now estimated to be a hundred and thirty billion dollar business worldwide. And COVID, I think, ex- helped with some of that acceleration in 2020. But I don't think it's going to drop. You know, once people get a taste of interactive entertainment and the just the most amazingly engaging experiences that they can't get. I don't think we're going to put away the controller and run through the fields, uh, you know, like a little house on the prairie. I think we're, we're always going to have uh, home-based entertainment, and, and it's not going to go anywhere, even after we get rid of this nasty global pandemic. Thanks so much, Mark. I appreciate you being on the program. Take care. You too, Alan. Thank you. 
That is Mark Saltzman, tech expert, talking about the release of the PS5, which officially comes out today. Although, as Mark says, good luck finding one. Uh, and the Xbox X, which was released on Tuesday. And on Tuesday, you may have noticed if you're down by the waterfront, a giant floating light-up Xbox in the water. Because as Borat taught us, remember when they had the inf- giant inflatable Borat? And they just float that thing through the harbor? And you know what happens? Every news organization, including my very own, runs down there and takes a video, shoves that on the news. And somewhere an executive, an advertising executive is like, ah! That is free. That is free advertising. But when we when we ran the video of the Xbox of the giant um, Xbox out in the harbor, I was made. I made sure to mention the PS5 was coming out. See, that's how I do it. That's how I spread the love around. I don't just give it all to one company. I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of love for Doug Ford coming right up. He's right up next, and ooh. We started our program talking about cheese. There are going to be some sharp questions for Doug Ford about which doctors he's actually listening to. Because I'll tell you, something's pungent. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch the Alan Carter Show weekdays beginning at noon.